I want to read a portion of Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, which insists, as you may remember before you open the book, on the new covenant that must one day be put into operation. Jeremiah, the 31st chapter. And the 31st verse. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbour and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I'm going to read the rest of this chapter, although you may wonder why I should do so. The reason is this, that there are some fine godly people who read the Old Testament promises concerning God and his ancient people and say that they are all now retranslated into the church, that there is no future for the people of Israel, uh, if an Israelite or a Jew believes Christ, well, he becomes, like you and I do, a member of the church, but that's the end of it. Well, some of us feel we can't quite read what we're going to conclude, Jeremiah 31, and be very happy about God making such promises and then failing to keep them or changing them. So let's read on. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, which divided the sea when the waters thereof roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. I somehow believe that's true, friends, and I hope you do too. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the city shall be built to the Lord from the tower of Hananiel unto the gate of the corner. I suppose there are some folks who could spiritualize that into something to do with the church. It wants a bit of manoeuvring, doesn't it? And the measuring line shall yet go forth over against it upon the hill Gareth, and shall compass about Goath. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes of all the fields unto the brook Kidron, unto the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be holy unto the Lord. It shall not be plucked up nor thrown down any more forever. 
I've read those words because I feel we must give place to the fact that God has taken an oath that he will perform the prophecy made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and David. And the Romans, the 11th chapter says that even though these people are at this moment enemies because of the gospel, they are beloved because of the fathers, because the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And then he comes back on ourselves. For if God can change his mind over one of his promises, well, we are standing on shaky soil, if that's the case, but we've got a rock beneath our feet. This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number 12 of the series of studies in the prophecy of Isaiah. You will uh, realise that when I say we are looking at chapter 55, and this is only number 12, we've had to stride through this mighty book and leave much undone. But it's not possible for us to take a word-for-word study in these meetings or this tape recording, otherwise it would be interminable and not serve its purpose. I want to take the 55th chapter and look at it a bit more seriously. We touched upon it last time, and we shall find that it divides into two sections. It stresses in the opening a sort of evangelical note, which we must be prepared to find in the Old Testament, And then it stresses the wonder and the power of the word of God itself. And there's a word that links some of these chapters together, and that is the word prosper. Just anticipating a little. Chapter 55, verse 11. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. That, that, I think, is true for all time. Provided God sends that word, there's no possibility of it failing to accomplish his purpose. But for the moment, we'll leave that. But we glimpse at the end of chapter 54, verse 17. No weapon that is formed against me shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. That shall not prosper. And then you know it's impossible to say that without turning the page back once more to Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It's good to see, isn't it, that in spite of all the denunciations against Israel's failures, and their many, and their departures, and their many, yet here we get this word beginning to come out, prosper. But you see, the prosperity is arising from God. It doesn't arise from councils or committees or agreements. It arises from the fact that God has a purpose And as he said, the ordinances of heaven and earth shall pass away, but those that he has made will remain. So, while we are not resting upon the basis of a new covenant, which was made with the house of Israel, we are resting upon the faithfulness 
of God who is behind it all. Well now shall we look at the opening section of chapter 55 for one or two thoughts that I feel are necessary. There's an evangelical ring about this verse, isn't there? Who every one that hath is come to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye by a deed. Yea, come by wine and milk without money and without price. Come. Uh, verse 3. Incline your ear and come and hear. And then a bit further down. Verse 7. Well, first of all, I, I, this one. Um, yes, uh, verse 6. Seek ye the Lord. And then in verse 7, return unto me. Now, if you were to take these words out of their context and go to the New Testament, come and hear and seek and return. Well, you've got the presentation of the gospel by the time you fill that in. For the gospel is a good message sent to you, an invitation. Come unto me, believe on me, believe on him whom I have sent. And it's addressed and called a report, who hath believed our report, something that you hear. The preaching of the word is something you hear. Faith cometh by hearing. Faith cometh more times by hearing than by reading. Some people have been converted without the sound of a human voice, a fragment from the Bible, some little piece that's printed. But many, perhaps the great majority, have heard the spoken word first and then led to the written word afterwards. And then we have the response. Seek. If God says come, he expects you to respond. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. And then return. And return brings with it the whole idea of repentance and reconciliation and acceptance. Well, that's only just on those four little basic words. But having raised this point, you see, Isaiah was living in the days of law. The gospel could not be fully preached until Christ himself came and accomplished his work. But look how many foreshadowings there are in it. Right the way through, if you go to say the uh, epistle to the Galatians, I think it is in chapter 3, uh, the apostle there says that this gospel that he was then preaching, that is to say justification by faith, was preached before unto Abraham. It says, um, chapter 3, verse 8, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen or the Gentiles through faith, preach before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. And that's one of many passages. In Romans the 10th chapter, he raises the question about the preaching of the gospel, and he says, um, about... Um, they have not all obeyed the gospel. Verse 16, For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily. Their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. So that even from the days of Abraham onwards, we've got the gospel embedded in the book, 
even though there were circumstances to do with the law uh, that uh, made it perhaps not quite so obvious. Or again, supposing we raise the question of faith, if we limit the word faith to the New Testament teaching, well, we've got one chapter in the New Testament, that's Hebrews 11. And there are 21 different uh, examples given there of faith, and every one of them are in the Old Testament times, beginning from uh, Abel, Noah, Abraham, right the way through. So you see, God has never left himself without witness. And although he put Israel under law, the old covenant was already passing so far as he was concerned. The new covenant was in prospect. And what Israel could never do, never enter by their own doings, the Christ that they rejected in the first case, but whom they must receive in the second case, will make gloriously possible. So we have now this, this call. I'm going to take the opportunity to, to draw his attention to this. I don't know whether you've ever heard the hymn sung, perhaps you have in a gospel meeting, and God says, whosoever, and that means me. Well, we wouldn't stop anyone's enthusiasm, that's all right. But if I say whosoever, I've said nothing, practically. Whosoever what? Then he say, whosoever hateth, whosoever disobeyeth. Oh, no, no, you, you've got no statement yet. God says whosoever, and that means me. No. You'll find that the gospel is not addressed merely to people or to uh, numbers, but to some quality. You say, what do you mean? Well, it's whosoever thirsteth, whosoever willeth, whosoever believeth. The whosoever is wide enough, but it's limited, you see, by... It says, come to the waters, but even the world has got a proverb, you could take a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink. It's not whosoever, it's whosoever thirsty. Now, alas, in spite of the fact there's living water available without money and without price, there seems to be a dreadful thirst on the part of so many for almost everything else except that. Speaking as I have just in passing on John 3.16, whosoever believeth, I'll take it one stage further, for those who can appreciate this point, there's no word for whosoever in the John 3.16. It's simply the word pass, which in the ordinary way means all. Pass, ho, pistuon. Pistuon is a participle of the verb to believe. And literally, you translate it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that every believing one that's the character. Not whosoever believed it, but everyone who can be marked with that characteristic is a believing one, should not perish, but have everlasting life. So, whom everyone, oh no, no, not quite, that's not full, or everyone that thirsteth. That's the only qualification you need to have that which is priceless. You simply have this thirst, and there is a stream. There is a well, there is a fountain, inexhaustible, without money and without price. Now that again is contrary to some of the thoughts of legal righteousness and law-keeping. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And please don't indulge in the idea that that's a bit of savagery. That's just common sense. 
and eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, is only sixteen ounces to the pound. And I've yet to hear anybody reprimand the lady in the butcher's when the butcher tries to foist uh, her fourteen ounces onto her for a pound, and so you bloodthirsty woman wanting an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. No. Righteousness is just a perfect balance, so that we've got the symbol on the the uh, old bailey, if you like to look across the back of the uh, morbid, you can still see it. The fair scales. And even Portia said to Shylock, Portia said Shylock, in the course of justice, none of us would see salvation. It's either going to be perfect, or you're a sinner needing salvation. One or the two. So it's everyone that thirsteth, and if you thirst, that's all you need. You needn't come with money, for this is not viable. Everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money. And that is the characteristic of us all. You remember the parable in Matthew, in the 18th chapter, the man who owed all that debt, and when he had nothing to pay, he was freely forgiven. Then you know how it goes on, but that's the point. That's where we all stand. And another parable, you could retranslate the words, and he had nothing to say. Friend, how famous thou in hither, not having the wedding garment? No excuse. He had nothing to say. And the other man had nothing to pay. That's how we come. And, is it Psalm 49 says, no one can any, by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. And then it says, this is without price. But once again, we have to correct ourselves. It doesn't mean to say it's valueless. This is putting the word again, it's priceless. That's to say, you can't possibly raise the amount. It's beyond all computation. But if you leave out the word price, you've got to leave out some precious passages in the New Testament. One says, know ye not, that you're not your own? You're bought with a price. And the price was the precious blood of Christ. The ransom that he paid. So you see, without money and without price is your point of view. You come just as you are. All that you have is a need. And it's interesting to know that one of the words translated prayer is a sense of need. Not to be eloquent in the presence of God and preach a wonderful sermon to him, but a sense of need. And a little baby that's only a few days old can express a sense of need that the mother knows and interprets the cry. And so we have that psalm that says, From the ends of the earth will I cry unto thee, when my heart is overwhelmed. That's all. You needn't make an eloquent speech to God. So now we've got this evangelical introduction. And then he reprimands them. How foolish it is to spend money for that which is not bread, and your labour for that which satisfies not. That is not common sense. And you see, all how many things are done by folk which are so unsatisfactory. They spend their time, their strength, their health, their money for that which is passing when that which is permanent and eternal and true is waiting for them in the hand of God as a gift, the gift of eternal life. Then again it says, once more, according to them, incline your ear. 
that the words are used of God, he inclines his ear. Now we can understand from some conception that people have of God that he would sit rigidly in his chair and wait for the prodigal son to get to the door, knock at the door, shuffle his feet and ask to come in. But that isn't the truth. It wasn't the prodigal son who ran. It was the old father who saw him and ran. He didn't stand upon his dignity and say he went out and let him come back. Don't misunderstand God, friends. He says he inclines his ear whenever you go to him. There's no holding back there. And fancy God himself has to say to you and me, well, won't you incline your ear when I speak to you? The long-suffering of God is a wonderful thing, isn't it? And I suppose we're all conscious that many a time we come under this. Incline thine ear and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live. Live. This is life that's hanging in the balance. Not merely a few short years of comparative ease or enjoyment, but life. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Now that brings me to a point that I want to stop on for a moment. I read pur- purposely just now Jeremiah 31, because that brings in the new covenant. Now if you take this, go- this uh, prophecy of Isaiah into its two parts, the first section, large section, is chapter 1 to 35. Then we get a break where you get Sennacherib coming up against Jerusalem. Then chapter 40 to the end. Two great sections. Now in the first section we get about three references to the covenant. Let's see what it says about them there, shall we? Collect them together so that we've got them under our eye for future study. The 24th chapter and the verse 5 is the first reference. Isaiah 24, verse 5. The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. There's the first occurrence of the everlasting covenant in Isaiah, and it's something that's broken. And so he speaks about the earth being empty and made waste and turned upside down in verse 1. Well now, we haven't time to ponder these, let's turn to chapter 28 and see whether there's any other references to the covenant. Oh dear, look at these people. Because ye have, this is verse 15, because ye have said, we have made a covenant with death and with hell are we in agreement. And then again, in verse 18, And your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. Oh, what an alternative. To break the everlasting covenant of God, and then, out of sheer desperation, make a covenant with whatever it might be, death and hell. It's turning your back completely upon God. Well, the only other reference to the covenant in the first half of Isaiah is in chapter 33. So there's only three references, uh, four, but three actual references in the first part. 33, verse 8. No, where am I? Have I got it? Oh yes, verse 8. 
And again you see, wasting and ceasing. The highways lie waste. The wayfaring man ceaseth. He hath broken the covenant. There it is. So the earth mourns and languishes, and Lebanon is ashamed and you down, and Sharon is like a wilderness. Sharon is like a wilderness. Chapter 35, all which is going to be changed. Verse 1, the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice either with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, and the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. That's because now restoration has at last come. Verse 10, And the ransom of the Lord shall return, and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now that's the end of that section. Now we start all over again with chapter 40 that says comfort ye, comfort ye. And we find in 42 the first reference to a covenant. Chapter 42, verse 6. I the Lord have called thee, this is behold my servant, who is going to bring judgment to the Gentiles, who should not cry nor lift up his voice in the streets. This is referring to Christ. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and I will hold thy hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. And you remember old Simeon, when he went into the temple, and saw the infant Christ, he said, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and to be the glory of my people Israel. Chapter 49, verse 8. You'll understand why I'm not dwelling on these too long, because of time. I want just to get them all before our minds in this one study. Chapter 49, verse 8. Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. So once again, we're back. Now this is referring to the Lord. Um, it says in verse 5, And now saith the Lord that formed thee from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him, though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he said it is a light thing that Thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. You see, it's already anticipated. Well, now let's look at chapter 54, verse 10. 54, verse 10. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord, that hath mercy on thee. There's the assurance being given that God keeps his covenant, whatever these people may do. And uh, in 56, in 56, for thus saith the verse 4, for thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. And I think it's, it's repeated again in verse 6. About the, uh, yes, and taking hold of my covenant. 
These are coming into it. Strange people, though they appear to be from our point of view. Chapter 59, we're getting to the end now. Chapter 59, 21. As for me, oh it says in verse 20, the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of mine, are thou my, thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seeds. Seed, it's going on, not merely passing it on to some church in the future, saith the Lord from henceforth, and forever. And the last reference is chapter 61, verse 8. I think we must read um, verse uh, from verse 4. And ye shall build, they shall build the old wastes, they shall raise up the former desolations, they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the alien shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers, but ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory shall ye boast yourselves. For your shame ye shall have double, and for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in their land they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy should be unto them, for I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering, and I will direct their work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. So the everlasting covenant in the first part of Isaiah is broken. And the last reference in Isaiah is God says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and he will keep it. Well, I hope it's not been wasting time just to survey that fact that it runs through this whole book as it were, like a backbone upon which the rest of it is constructed. Uh, just one word more before we go to the second half of chapter 55. I will give you the sure mercies of David. You do know, don't you, that in the Acts of the Apostles and in the Old Testament, David is spoken more than once as being the future king of Israel on the earth. Uh, one passage I think alone I can spare time for, you may find some others. Jeremiah 30, verse 9. Jeremiah 30, verse 9. Uh, it says, But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Well, this was written by Jeremiah, years and years after David was dead and buried. Yet they shall serve David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. And one other one, Hosea chapter 3, when it says, And after many days they shall return unto the Lord, and to David their king. Now, in the Acts of the Apostles, when Paul quotes, the sure mercies of David, it's to prove the resurrection. So in risen power, these people are going to enter into their covenant blessings and in risen glory, David. David is a lovely character, isn't he? Because I think he made so many mistakes like some of us do. He was chosen by God. 
He was a man after God's own heart. And he said he's a desperate sin. Not that we're going to say that's right. And he was forgiven. And he's yet to be blessed. That's the sort of earthen vessel that God stoops to use. And so we have this emphasis here about the covenant. Well now, I want to come to the other half of this Isaiah 55, where it speaks about the power of the word. He says in verse 8, after saying, I will abundantly pardon, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Well, we can see that, can't we? We're not so easily moved to pardon. We are more like sitting on our dignity and waiting for some of us to come and beg and pray. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now he gives an illustration of the coming, as it were, of the word of God, and particularly blessed in connection with the thought of the gospel. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. Now I'll stop there for a moment. I very much hope, and I believe I have reason to believe, that these little studies that we have in this chapel, are not merely helping you who sit here and listen, but they are helping some who are in other parts of the earth, some are missionaries, some are living alone, some are living in great cities. These little studies are recorded and sent to quite a number of places in America, in New Zealand, in Australia, and some of you are listening to me and say, what about me, you forget me, yes friend, I'll meet you one day in the glory, I don't know you. But, here we have this word, it shall give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. Let's remember that whenever we have an opportunity to speak in the name of God. There's two classes of hearers listening at the same time possibly. One is starving for the bread of life. Give it. And never be too apologetic for preaching Christ and his finished work in simplest terms. Because if you have in your congregation aged saints who've loved it all their lives, well they'll only be too glad that somebody else is hearing it. And if they're in any measure... Uh, wishing you hadn't said it, well, leave them alone and go on with it just the same, you see. Preach the Christ in the simplest possible terms. Give the bread of life to the ones who want the water and the bread of life thirsting and hungry for it. But remember also that there are some listening, as some are listening to me, who in their turn are teaching Bible classes, conducting services, <coughs> pastors of churches, and so on. You'd be surprised to know the different characters there are who are all taking these studies together with us. Give them seed to sow in. So that sometimes we pause to explain this passage and that passage without a great deal of detail, knowing that the hint's enough to send these folks back to their concordance and to get all the passages together and possibly by that just one hint they've got a message that God will bless. That's the coming weekend, we don't know, we hope so. So here we have the twofold way in which the word of God can be used, that it may be seen, and that it may give bread to the eater. Now I'm going to turn you back to Psalm 29. 
Because of all the Psalms that stress the word of God, this is the one. If without opening the book you'd have said, which Psalm stresses the word of God most? I think most of us would have immediately said, Psalm 119. Because practically every verse, would except about two passages, refers to something to do with the law or the testament, the order statutes or what not. But listen to this. Psalm 29. Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. Yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. He maketh them also to skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like a young unicorn. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness. The Lord shaketh the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord maketh the hinds to calm, and discovereth the forests, and in his temple doth every one speak of glory. The Lord sitteth upon the flood, yea, the Lord sitteth forever. The Lord will give strength unto his people, the Lord will bless his people with peace. But the stress is the voice of the Lord, the psalm of the voice of the Lord. Now you sometimes will meet this sort of person. He's working in a factory. He's dealing with, say, engineering. And he says, he's doing a job of work. But this other fellow who comes and sits on a stool and does a lot of scripting, well, what's he doing? Well, you see, if you could put it into operation, you could soon show that if the man who sat on his stool and did the scribbling went on strike, the whole nation would come to a paralyzing stop. There's nothing more important in this life than the word spoken or written. You try to imagine. Here's a factory where they're all doing work and the men who sit at the scribbling desk are not doing anything. Nobody orders any material. Nobody buys it in the right place. Nobody has a timetable for the trains to run. They can go on. You're, you're, you're stuffed. You're finished. You'd have neither bread to eat, nor milk to drink, nor water on your taps. It'd all be paralyzed if there wasn't a word continually spoken or written day and night. And that's true with regard to the scriptures. The effective thing with regard to all our Christian life is the fact that God has spoken and still speaks. And Christ himself bears that title. The Apostle John has written Gospel, Epistle and Revelation. And in each three, each one of those three is the Word of God. When he comes in glory, he wears that title, the Word of God. And so we have here then a stress upon the Word of God. Now God picks up again about this word in chapter 55. Uh, so, linking it on with seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto thee void. It shall accomplish that which I please. It shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Of course, what we do not always know is why the Lord sends some particular message. But that's not our responsibility. 
If we are messengers, and that's our duty, that's our main object, we do not invent the message. We may not all, or even always know its full meaning. But if God sends us, you see, you notice how the Apostle was thinking of this too. When he said, how should they preach except they be sent? And Jeremiah, you remember, in his chapter, he says, they speak a vision of their own heart, but I sent them not. You see, we are not visionaries. We are not prophets. We are messengers. We may know the message that's there. We may like be like the village postman who tells the person when they hand the postcard in where her daughter is and what time she's coming home because she's read it beforehand. That's all right. We read it beforehand. But whether we read it beforehand and understand it or not, we have a responsibility to pass that word on. So he says, I sent it. I sent it. And the word that is translated sent is the word that becomes the word apostle when it goes through the mill of the Septuagint into the New Testament. These apostles simply were sent ones. Apo means away from, Stello is I send, I send you away from me with a message. Whether you understand the message or not, not the point. Your first responsibility is faithful delivery. And then if you could sit down and talk to the person who's got the message and say, well, I had one, and look what it did for me, oh, that's better. That's the way to confirm the message. But first of all, to give it. So I'm suggesting to some of you who are listening, who sow the seed, don't hesitate to read the bit of scripture, and don't hesitate to tell the friends who are listening to you now, don't think I understand this completely. I'm only passing on, on what God has said to me. Because, strictly speaking, friends, with all the advance of modern science, with all the fact that farmers today go to college and university as well, they could not yet tell you all that there is to know about the seed they put in the earth. They couldn't tell you all the processes that go on to bring it first to the blade and then the ear, but they do it. So don't stop <coughs> and think, now before I know everything, before I've got, I know everything about it, I mustn't say a word, you go on giving a testimony. If you cannot say anything more except the blind man's witness, he, he was so ignorant that when they said Christ was a sinner, he said, whether he's a sinner or no, I don't know. He says, one thing I do know, though. You know what he said, don't you? One thing I do know, whereas I was blind, now I see how he did it. I can't tell you. I can't tell you the power that was there. I don't know why it should have happened, but he did. You pass that on when you pass the message on. And that may be what God intends. <coughs> <coughs> the word accomplish is the word that goes right back to Genesis 1 as one of the words referring to creation. This is a creative word. And that's what we get in Genesis 1. All that God is said to have done in Genesis 1 is to speak. As I said earlier, he spoke. And it was done. He commanded it stood fast. He said, light. And the, it's very, very terse in the Hebrew. It almost looks like this. Light bead. And light bead. But if you can't say light bead in our English, so we say light bead and light was. Just like that. And that's how God speaks. And that's the word that he's given us. We needn't apologize for it. We can only just stand back and see it work without a hindrance from our part altogether. 
Verse 12, For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. All their wonderful figures of speech, aren't they? But we wouldn't have them altered. Uh, the idea of trees clapping their hands and hills skipping like little lambs is only just to show the joy that's coming to this poor stricken earth. Isn't it marvellous? When you think of the wonder of this present creation and what man has been doing and what he's doing so that the past are all sitting paralysed in their little holes in different countries wondering who's going to let off something first. God says in the book of the Revelation he's going to destroy them that destroy the earth. And here is the other side of it. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree. The thorn and the thistle goes back to Genesis. The curse upon the earth. And if ever you've done any gardening and anything to do with the land, you know how easy it is to grow thistles and docks and how difficult it is to grow an ordinary crop. It's there everywhere. By the sweat of your face, you must eat bread if you grow it. And that's one of the reasons why we don't quite realise how the curse is on the earth, because it's the other man who sows the seed and we eat the bread. We don't know the sweat that goes into it to bring it to our door. And so Cain was the first city builder to put a veneer over the curse of the earth and make it less obvious. <laughs> I don't mean to say we're all going to pack up and go and live in the country because it's too late in the day. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Not be cut off. God says so, let's believe it. He repeats it, you see, in 56, at the end of verse 5, that shall not be cut off. <coughs> now, with regard to this emphasis on the word, not be cut off, I think I can just crowd into the next few minutes this thought. That if you were reading the original again, when it says, God made a covenant with somebody, you would discover that it says he cut a covenant. Never make a covenant, but cut a covenant. What do you say here? What's that mean? Well, it goes back to the original way in which covenants are made. The outstanding illustration is in Genesis 15. God called Abraham and said to him, you arrange the sacrifices that will be necessary for me to make a covenant with you, Abraham. So Abraham took the sacrifices and divided them. As though the thought was <coughs> that when two people come together to make a covenant, one stands there, or one stands there, and says, The Lord do so to me a more or so, if I don't keep my part. And you know, <coughs> to this day, sometimes we speak about indentures to do with apprentices, not so common as they used to be, and a person may say, I wonder why they call it indentures, it sounds like to do with their teeth. And so it is. But not the teeth they have in their head. Because when the indenture was signed by the apprentice, the solicitor took a pair of scissors and cut a zigzag across it like teeth, gave him one and the master the other. Now those must come together to prove that that's the one indenture, that's the one covenant. So all the way through the Bible this covenant is cut and perfect and fitting and will be put together and will be realised in God's good time.
Well, that's as far as we can go, I think, this afternoon with an attempt to let one chapter in the prophecy of Isaiah speak. The call to come. The thirsty one to be refreshed. Free, greatest and for nothing because it's a gospel word. And then the other side. The breaking of the covenant in the first part. But the establishing of the covenant in the second part. <coughs> and then ultimately the stress upon the power and the wonder of the word of God that he has sent. So may this little afternoon study prove once again to be bread for the eater and seed for the sower. And may we confidently hand it over to him now and say, Lord, once more we are sure that it will accomplish that whereunto thou should send it. And there we can rest. Our only diffidence is how far we have been faithful in its proclamation and how far what we have said is quite in line with his truth. But if the Lord were to be swift to mark iniquity, not one of us would stand in a pulpit like this and speak as I have this afternoon. And so we rest in his faithfulness and in his mercy and commend the witness once more to his kind care.